A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox Internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home Internet. Cox is the real home Internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of UCLA speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com slash Internet for details. For bigger issues, so a lot of that revolves around places like FIFA and the decision making that goes on there, other sports bodies around the world as well. So when the FIFA arrest happened in 2015 uh, in Zurich, I was already there, and I got the only video of one of the arrests taking place. Okay. Uh, someone being dragged out the back and <laughs> um, bed sheets being held up by um, the hotel staff attempting to hide this member um, <laughs> from, uh, from public view. What we discovered a few months ago was various leaks um, <laughs> from Manchester City's internal correspondence, which were gained by Der Spiegel. Actually, I got a leak about the leaks. So a few days before, about a week or so before the leaks came out, because I didn't have them, but I knew they had, I was able to speak to Gianni Fantino, who was, um, of course, UEFA General Secretary at the time. I mean, my my initial story, which I wrote last December, was the fact that, you know, they are convinced they've been, um, you know, they believe they've been misled. City deny that. Um, And there's an appetite to ban them from the Champions League. So Rob, in your opinion, does this ban happen? Yes or no? If UEFA can get it through the the, the sports court, then yeah. So hello everybody, um, we're back for part two. I'm still joined by Rob and Dej. Um, in this part, we're gonna, you know, talk about, you know, a bit about Rob's career, about the work he's doing and the the brilliant, you know, research he's been doing in the game. So I just want, you know, I'm gonna start with Dej. I want you to just, you know, tell us a bit about how we actually got in contact with Rob and when we first, you know, saw him. How was the experience? Yeah, a few weeks ago we went to the, uh, you know, the Jumpers for Goalpost convention. You know, it was a very, very good event. All football heads were there. We weren't going to miss that event. And, you know, (laughs) Rob was conducting a panel, you know, speaking about different events in the game. And, you know, he really caught our attention. So after he finished his set, we, you know, we approached him and we struck a chord immediately. We yeah, really I'm bonded sure we were with talking him. for like 45 minutes, Rob. Yeah, <laughs> about just... a range of issues, you know, different issues surrounding the game. And we were really left, you know, thinking, wow, that was really, he's a really impressive individual 
and like we wanted to pick his brain further. Yeah, I've known about Rob's work for a long time. He's been one of the pioneers on Twitter, always breaking, pressing issues all the time. You just go on Rob's timeline, you get all the updates in terms of what's going on in the game. So, Rob, let's let's go back. How did you get into sports writing, reporting, broadcasting? Just tell us a bit about you. So I was originally a sort of generalist, a journalist, doing a lot of general news, doing, you know, did a politics degree at university, didn't actually do formal journalism qualifications, a lot of student journalism, and that led to various sort of opportunities. I was um, freelancing, and I originally got into AP covering um, more harder news, so I'd actually do various terrorism instances and uh, investigations mm. and uh, those sort of things. And they actually needed some various bits of sport covering, you know, mm. you know having always been a sports fan. Mm. And I'd never actually necessarily envisaged going into sports writing. Always saw myself more as the, the viewer of sport. Mm. And um, then gradually more and more um, opportunities in sport happened particularly as I covered a lot of the issues around it like sports business and takeovers yeah. mm. and sports politics and yeah then moved into it full time yeah so I just want to interject there so in terms of what drew you towards that side of the game because I know a lot of journalists break transfer news you know but you're more about the pressing issues in the game should I say um what what drew you to that yeah, I mean, there's a lot of interest, obviously, in transfer stories, mm. um, a lot of appetite for them, and I will dip in and out. I think if you're going to do that a lot of the time, you have to spend a lot of time dedicated into that world. But, um, you know, company I work for, Associated Press, backed me to explore bigger issues. So a lot of that revolves around places like FIFA and the decision-making that goes on there, other sports bodies around the world as well. And actually, there aren't many of us who cover that area as well. So it's a, uh, it's a clearer terrain in part as well. Mm. And actually, it dips in and out of mass interest. So I can go, as I did last year, to a FIFA council meeting in Rwanda for a few days. And there's basically only a couple of us journalists who've come um, from outside the region. Um, I mean, it's one of the reasons why it's good they take them to places like Rwanda because it gives more of a chance for journalists based nearby to actually get to yep. part of the decision-making uh, process. But it means that even when it's not issue number one FIFA, the fact you can be there and actually ve- very quickly the issues and things they are talking about become the talking points from the the, the stands to the pubs. Yeah, so um, as you said, there's a clearer path in your side of reporting. So... Do you prefer this side of reporting to the transfer breaking? Do you find it much more fulfilling? Or, yeah. I mean, in terms of what I do, I mean, one of the ultimate case, my Andrew Jennings, who did a lot of FIFA reporting, particularly like in the early part of the century, and you know, film chasing after um, the FIFA members as well. This isn't criticism of him, but you wouldn't necessarily hear him being around the game itself, and it's obviously quite removed from that. I do enjoy being in and around actual stadiums at games um, and actually part of the game because actually it shows to people around FIFA I'm not just here necessarily to tip a load of manure on you I'm actually covering <laughs> all aspects of it so you know I've been to the e-world cup finals of the last three years running recently again at the O2 just you know I'm going to look at all aspects of FIFA all aspects of the game as well and to you know not just shut out one area because actually you see that as like a, 
completely estranged from what the game is on the pitch and realise actually this is how people engage with football or FIFA more broadly. So, um, yeah, it's good to be able to get a variety so I can do, like I did recently at the Women's World Cup, out there for, what, five weeks or so. And some of it is scrutinising FIFA on their misleading information on ticket sales um, that put (laughs) off people from actually going, it was clear. Um, issues around prize money and the debate over that but actually you can also cover the games the features around it you can speak to the players and things that are related to actual football and not some deep meaning so actually hopefully you get a broader sense and you don't become too disconnected from the game itself and 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 you seem sort of of rail against everything that exists for or anything so what fulfills you the most in terms of your job so is it breaking a big story or getting a great interview or, you know, breaking a transfer transfer story? Maybe you get a source from someone and you break the story. What fulfills you the most? Yeah, and I have done transfer stories and it's always good when you get to break various ones. I mean, in terms <laughs> of uh, my company, the fur, if they're the top end of the game. The problem with a lot of transfer stories is, so a lot of people will think if a transfer doesn't, come to fruition the fact all the original reporting was false and stuff no it's just the way it works the Mm. fact that actually negotiations happen transfers fall apart the problem is and i've had this you know you do get some people in the game wanting their players linked with certain clubs they want you to write could you link my player with x y and z company i work for associated press you can't really do that because it's not you have to multiple source you have to be sure it's going to happen you're not there to place people's agendas and a lot of not say a lot. Sometimes some transfer stories can be, you know, potentially helping out people in the game. Doesn't mean there isn't truth behind them because the players are on the move and there is interest around it. But so that's one aspect of it. Then what fulfills you? Hopefully, to try to tell people things they didn't know. Yeah. Um, sometimes that stuff that might have come out anyway. You're just getting it slightly ahead of time. Or it's giving people insight, stuff that was never meant to come out. Or you're giving a construction on a story that you have to analyse and gain information on one recently. Not of mass interest, maybe in parts of the world, but certainly to um, Africa last week over FIFA and how they've basically gone in to take control of the African Confederation and now how they're selling off TV rights Mm. is an important issue. And scrutinising some of the decision-making behind this unprecedented takeover to try to, how they see it as, you know, sort of rescue some of the decision-making there. So... You know, there are things like that. And, you know, I think every journalist probably wants people talking about their stories and certainly social media has helped that. Um, Associated Press being a news agency that's used by a lot of outlets around the world, probably pre-social media, the journalists at times might be a bit more anonymous, but now we do actually have a platform mm-hmm. to draw people back into us and people engage with you on stories as well. So, so what's the biggest story that you've ever broken? What's the story that's garnered the most amount of traction that you've been like, wow, I can't believe this is happening? You know, it's one of those where I now feel I should like have this off the top of my head out of them. <laughs> I mean, there are certain moments where you separate between the actual story and certain things in this day and age, like the video. So when the FIFA arrest happened in 2015 uh, in Zurich, I was already there. And I got the only video of one of the arrests taking place. Okay. Uh, someone being dragged out the back and <laughs> um, bed sheets being held up by um, the hotel staff attempting to hide this member um, <laughs> from uh, from public view. And uh, as, as, as the police car was there and 
yeah, I mean, there have been, you know, many stories, stories that hopefully have led to um, change within places like um, FIFA. I mean, actually, I'm thinking, I think, I'm trying to remember which stories about, about Beckham choosing LA for his, um, sorry, choosing Miami for his um, MLS franchise that mm. comes to mind. I meant, um, um, even the first tentative attempts by the FA to impose a complete ban on betting by uh, all players um, mm. tends to be so focused off on going forward that you're not then mm. um, looking back yeah. over over the ones um, you've actually done. Maybe, maybe some will spring to mind. Uh, what about uh, recently? Uh, yeah, I mean, we saw, you know, after the FA Cup final, Pep Guardiola <laughs> was celebrating his treble then I think you asked some questions that needed to be asked about the financial doping. Following the rules, I'm sorry, I believe it. If the opponents and contenders believe that it's the, just the money they said, it's okay, there will be a problem. So yeah, There's one big question the club haven't answered, which related, which unfortunately is the environment you are celebrating, but... Roberto Mancini was discovered to have had separate payments from Abu Dhabi while okay, guys, manager. We're not have you ever had separate payments from Abu Dhabi while now. city manager? Do you know, do you know the question as you're asking to me? Do you know the question asking me if I receive money for another situation right now today? Do you honestly, do you think I deserve to make this kind of question and happen, Roberto? I don't know. The day won the travel about the I've received money for another situations? Okay, we're we'll running an embargo now, please. Oh we'll my Just down the front, please. Are you accusing me? What's it? Are you accusing me to receive money for the under? No, I'd ask the question sometime. No, ago, that's but good. I mean, it's only relevant because it came up again this week. That's why. That's why I said it's important. Okay, pass the mic, please, Rob. That's going on with Manchester City. I remember well, you saying legend. Roberto Mancini was getting under the table payments, and is this something well, that? He... Well, yeah, I mean, I mean, yeah, I have to say a lot of reporting I've done on Manchester City's finances. I'd go through their accounts in the early days of the Abu Dhabi ownership as financial fair play was coming in, and would spot various payments that were um, potentially going to leave them in breach of financial fair play. Where? We are now a financial fair player. So Manchester City were punished in a few years ago for overspending, for breaching the rules, and they did a settlement with FIFA at the time to, um, sorry, UEFA at the time to, um, you know, they avoided a ban from the Champions League. They had the big, big fine, and they had limits on the squad. What we discovered a few months ago was various leaks. Um, <laughs> from Manchester City's internal correspondence, which were gained by Der Spiegel, actually. I got a leak about the leaks. So a few days before, about a week or so before the leaks came out, because I didn't have them, but I knew they had, I was able to speak to Gianni Infantino, who was, um, of course, UEFA General Secretary at the time of this Man City settlement. So I was able to speak to him about the leaks. So I actually had a story about the leaks before the leaks actually came out. So, you know, you know, beat journalistic colleagues in terms of like they didn't they lost that slight element of surprise the fact they had these um leaks and in it we we saw a lot of dealings within how Manchester City was operating and um one of it was just how they were paying Roberto Mancini and um, he was basically getting near as much as much salary from Manchester City when he was city manager as he was from Mansour's club in Abu Dhabi <laughs> yeah. um which first of all is fine as long as you're declaring it in the right way mm. um, to the authorities for 
um, particularly in this case for um, to UEFA, the fact that is he actually doing a job there? Yeah. Because it's, a re- it's what they call a related party transaction because the Abu Dhabi team is part of the bigger City football group. And it had been something I immediately put to City, like was Pep Guardiola getting similar? Is he, does he get money from other parts of the City football group as well? Is he a consultant? You know, say it makes sense if he's one of their, one of their prime uh, staff. Um, and it was getting on through the season and because I don't really do that many pre-match press conferences um, because I, I don't really find them that useful. Um, they're quite dull. I can find, hopefully do my own reporting. Um, so there'll be various games I'll be out about. I should have asked him post-match this question because it's City still haven't answered it. Mm. And then it got to the final press conference of the season. <laughs> and at Brighton the week before, I thought I won't... You rain on these parades sort of thing. Yeah, yeah I mean, do you know what I meant to ask about fair, fair play because I knew it was looming, but I thought, well, you just won the title. And I thought, <laughs> it got to the FA Cup final. I thought, well, this oh. is the last <laughs> opportunity. And what most people won't have um, heard is the fact that there were two questions. And actually, the first question was... Yeah, yeah, was, I, I saw it. I'm yeah, listened, yeah. Was, what other people who'd asked him about financial fair play through the year hadn't said was, he's not on the board of directors. So I said, I know you're not responsible for this. You're not on the board of directors, by which, I mean, we should be hearing from the club leadership on the record. Um, what do you say to those, you know, the fact it's a diminished achievement, this um, treble, because of uh, the ongoing investigations into the club? And he, he sort of over-answered it. He gave a, a very full defense of the club and the moment then you're doing that is you then give him you give the ability for follow-up questions mm-hmm. so i said well we do have this unresolved issue which is are you do you have any do you receive payments from um i can't remember the exact word but related yep. companies in abu dhabi which some people suggest i was accusing him of like illegal wrongdoing well no it's <laughs> nothing wrong with him receiving money from um, a company to do other work as long as his contract allows him to do any work for any other um, company but it, within the concept of financial fair play and rather than just saying no say are you accusing me so since that day no one has asked me from the club not to repeat it not to ask again no one's given me an answer no one's warned me off the issue at all which you can judge that how you wish mm. and um <laughs> They didn't even try to make contact. I had to make contact again a few weeks later because I got a um, um, an exclusive on the state of their case, which is quite unusual. The fact they'd gone to the court of arbitration of sport to try to stop the judge even looking at the case, um, wow. and it was in that case City's non-denial, which then gave me the confidence to report it. As an example, actually, that was like a story that took a couple of days because one source mentioned it to me, and because it seemed quite unusual. I then waited another day to back it up and find a second source, which shows actually how we do. You go for multiple sources, not mm. just the first person yeah, who yeah, tells you something. It. So, Rob, I've got, I think, two questions to ask you on this. So, firstly, the, you know, the, the room. When you asked that question, what was the reaction of your, your colleagues? Well, Did they all look at you like, wow, Rob, what a, what a question. How was it? Was it, yeah, I would love to know. Yeah, I mean, there was some immediate support from some other journalists afterwards. I mean, some were in shock because some wouldn't even go near a question mm. of controversy um, mm. like that. But when, as I have done, I've even, you know, a couple of hours after Russia won its bid to host the World Cup, um, 
we had access to Vladimir Putin at a press conference. Mm. And my first question to him, my only question to him, <laughs> was, um, was about how he was going to deal with Russia's problem with racism in the domestic game in the build-up to the World Cup. Mm. You know, they've mm. just won the World Cup bid and, uh, you know, immediately did have to shift it onto a difficult area. Mm. Um, so, if, you know, hopefully, if, you know, our job is to challenge people course, with issues yeah. that are legitimate in any situation mm-hmm. and I suppose some in the room are probably surprised you know the timing mm-hmm. um some would prefer it as an easy I mean what was really surprising is um a few minutes later someone said to me you weren't hoping to play at Manchester City still were you in midweek at the media game I was like <laughs> well no and that wouldn't influence if I was going to ask a question anyway and so it's slightly concerning the fact that actually someone would be seduced by the access of just playing a game at the uh, the stadium um, in terms of how you judge what you do and don't ask. I mean, it's always, a, it's always that question over, just generally, if you don't ask a difficult question, do you fear losing your access? Yeah. And... You don't seem like the man that, that, that fears and that it's all, sort of stuff. It's all about being fair. Mm. Um, you know, people can judge it. So closing press conference the World Cup in Russia, I had to, you know, put some... Challenging issues to Gianni Infantino as uh, FIFA president, his big world first World Cup as FIFA president, mm. um, about his relationship with Vladimir Putin and his closeness and his over um, fawning, as I think I called it in print at times, which was going um, above and beyond their business relationship in terms of what you probably needed to say. Mm. Um, and, you know, that's a big closing press conference for the World Cup. And, you know, Fast forward a few months, spent an hour with him on the record, an interview, other mm-hmm. times as well then. Hopefully, I don't know, hopefully he judges the fact that you were asking because these are legitimate talking points. Mm. Um, and I suppose it's also the difference between dealing with a football club and dealing with an institution like FIFA. Mm. Um, you can put more of an onus on someone like FIFA to respond to issues in the sense they should be publicly accountable. Um, whereas a football club, it's much harder and often you're... you're you know, you're having to press because you want that player interview. Um, mm. How useful some of those interviews are, you know, often mm. the skill of the writer to actually make them interesting yeah. um, at times. But you have to decide where you fall on. And hopefully you can still do those player interviews and as well as other aspects of the game. And you don't, you know, you don't go into every interview thinking mm. it's like a, a chance to catch someone out or something <laughs> or to that. Because also some interviews are... Feature interviews, there are no contentious issues to bring up or they might not necessarily be relevant at that particular moment as well or the setting of various things. So actually, it's the ability to to go in between different types of interviews and questioning scenarios. And hopefully, ultimately, as long as people think you're fair in doing it grounded in fact and you're not trying to turn it into public grandstanding as well, yeah. which people could you know, then give you cause for question um you know the only other time i've asked pep guardiola a question of challenge, challenging nature was after they won the league cup you know and it was only because mm. in 27 in what year, 2018 Feb, february march 2018 uh, and that was only because he turned it into a political press conference he was wearing the ribbon okay, to, the yeah. yellow ribbon to signal his um backing slash sympathy yeah. for the catalonian prisoners yeah. and um it got me thinking as he kept on talking more and more about the reason for wearing it and also his um, belief 
in the rights of populations to have their say, like mm, talking about Scottish yeah, independence yeah. and all these other political mm-hmm. issues, political issues. I thought you, you you've just won the League Cup. You're turning this into a political press conference, and you'd already thanked Sheikh Mansour as well, who is obviously a political figure in Abu Dhabi, yeah, being yeah. a prime minister. Um, so the worst thing people have said, well, why don't you say that to your face? Why do you write something and not say it to the face? So, well, I'm probably going to write a piece about this whole unusual press conference. So I said, how do you reconcile the fact that all these beliefs in freedoms, freedom of speech and, and political freedoms be respected? How do you reconcile the fact, obviously, you are, you know, the rights groups have criticised, you know, Sheikh Mansour and Abu Dhabi. And he had a very vague answer. He wasn't prepared for his... Um, for, 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 to be challenged in that mm. setting. So how yeah. do you find dealing with Pep Guardiola? Yeah. Because you've had mm. like, recent run-ins with him. And I think it's good that in the journalism society, there's people that want to challenge, want to probe, because as you said, some journalists want to just keep in the manager's good books. But it's journalists like you that you know provide the real hard content. So how do you find dealing with Pep? Yeah, I mean... <laughs> You know, when when you're listening to him as well, when you're talking about football, you have to step back and think, well, this is one of the great minds of the game as well, mm-hmm. one of the great coaches of our time. You can still see him as that. Um, you know, you always... You know, to have contact and the ability to talk through issues is often um, far better. The fact City have not addressed certain things off-camera means that's why they're often turned into on-camera scenarios yes, yes. Uh, a lot of time in and around fifa the access is actually quite good you go to a meeting you can talk to lots of people a lot of it is rarely ever seen publicly but it means you can talk through things in depth as well um you perhaps don't get that in and around mm. football clubs all the time but you know there are many executives in and around the game that um you know you do have the chance to, to speak to so rob where do we stand in terms of you know, Man City's investigation. I know they had a a, a terrible fine of what three hundred thousand. I so mean, poultry, come on, so that's I mean, like that was from FIFA over the transfers. Of in this case, yeah. What about? I remember you telling us off air about they're trying to say that they're not owned by a country. Well, um, actually, that's some of the fans. Some of the fans, City fans, have now started claiming they're not owned by Abu Dhabi, <laughs> whereas actually, you know, it's something that City has not only never pushed back on, but also they are, even Pep Guardiola has publicly praised Shank, Shank Mansour for the backing. I mean, they are in the midst of this financial fair play case, which is over the deceptions that were uncovered by the leaks, which showed how they sort of um, try to circumvent things and uh, the, the methods that they allegedly implemented that they've never denied, they've never disputed. Mm-hmm. I mean, in terms of the, so they've never denied the authenticity of the documents. They deny wrongdoing in, in a particular context and they claim there's a sort of clear and organised attack on them. Um, as it stands now, they're in the midst of this UEFA investigation. They've what? been charged mm-hmm. and we're waiting now for the actual final verdict. But even then, it will run and run in court uh, what do you what do you are. feel? What's the initial sound sound bites that you hear? Do you feel that you even want them down? I mean, my my initial story, which I wrote last December, was the fact that you know they are convinced they've been, um, you know, they believe they've been misled. City deny that, um, and there is an appetite to ban them from the Champions League over the wow. attempt to circumvent the rule. The question is, how long does the ban? Um, apply for and um, does it stand up in the court of arbitration for mm. sport ultimately as well so Rob in your opinion does this ban happen yes or no if UEFA can get it through the, the 
the sports court, then yeah. So, so you're telling me UEFA are pushing for this? They 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 want this ban to happen, right? Yeah, there is an appetite to see them punished, and the fact that for the credibility of the of the regulations as well. I mean, you can have a far bigger debate about financial fair play and is it uh, justified? And I'm surprised City a few years ago didn't push that and publicly state opposition to. Um, the ban. I mean, actually, just remember, a fascinating interview I did in March was um, unexpectedly with um, the um, former head of um, police in Abu Dhabi. Not someone <laughs> you would think is directly connected to this, connected to the case. Crazy. But is actually mm. he is now the sports chief in 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 the country. He is the head of sport, and he was running for a a position with the Asian Football Confederation at the time. So I asked him about what his views are on uh, financial fair play and whether he wants to... Um, um, actually, it was more vague. I think it was around just financial transparency. He actually introduced the topic of financial fair play and saying he mm. wanted to introduce it into Asia. And before I could... He, I didn't even put words in his mouth. He was actually talking about the Manchester City case and he's well, City should be punished if they have done wrong. And that's Crazy. and he said, even with his friend being Sheikh Mansour, he knows him. <laughs> um, and so it showed it's not just some opinion of some um, view we're sort of against the influx of money from the region at all because actually, you know, there's investment into the game is welcome, particularly when you see... Um, clubs and league struggling it's a question of how much money should be injected into the game should a country be um effectively in control of a club and then you start to get onto deeper issues about human rights and freedoms mm. coming from that country and how much a club should then be judged um in connection with its ownership and how much are you in fact an extension of the foreign policy of the country the fact you're using the club for what Amnesty would say is sports washing to basically launder the image um, and how much football fans can become unwittingly compliant in that while they're grateful for the investment and the transformation of their club's fortunes that suddenly they're actually well they are pumping money into an area to give investment into an area of East Manchester how much actually however much it is delivering results on the pitch is actually about the image of a country um, and a benefit happens to be it helps not only an area, but a fan base suddenly realise dreams um, they are long hopeful. And yeah, it's a very complex geopolitical and sporting issue. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to ask, you know, Chelsea have been, you know, banned for a few transfer windows for, you know, I think activity regarding young players, signing young players. So how come Manchester City haven't been banned? Because Chelsea, I saw, are monitoring this situation closely with Man City <laughs> and deciding whether to, you know, take action. Yeah, I mean, the Chelsea case has seemed to be more extreme in terms of the number of players involved. I mean, a lot of it comes down to, effectively, you know, was a player actually um, part of the system? Was it just a short-term trial? Were they technically, should they be registered as being part of the academy? So you can argue on technicalities. Real Madrid, Atletico Madrid have had transfer bans as well. Um, and, you know, one club executive from Italy said to me, well, if you're a talented musician, you could move to a different country at 12 years old, 13 years old, 14 years old. So should actually we be allowed to give them these opportunities in life? And it's all about, well, clubs who might sort of bring players in from different parts of the world and then just toss them aside. And, you know, it's about player welfare. Yeah. Um, maybe you could have some sort of like, you know, kite system stars, which shows that actually this is a very credible club that even if you are a 12-year-old being brought, they, they will be giving you a proper 
ongoing education, even if you do um, don't make it as a player. The problem is, you know, less scrupulous clubs and owners potentially bringing in players from different parts of the world who, you know, perhaps you know, less wealthy parts of the world as well, where you sort of grasp at any opportunity and then you sort of get effectively just left on the street, which yeah, is the case of yeah. that. So that's what it's all to guard against, why we have these rules in place. Um, and Chelsea have been fighting their ban. The FA have been fined as well relating to it because, you okay. know, they, they have... they. Um, responsible for tracking and keeping logs of these players um but yeah it's a complex one just quickly before we move on to another topic two great historic english clubs may be going under we've got bolton and we've got berry just give us a little summary of what's happening there i mean this is all about which owners I remember are, are allowed to take over clubs and how much can you properly do mm, due diligence and mm. check out how, what, what their intentions are are the money is the money there at all yeah i think i saw miguel delaney's piece on this and he was saying a similar thing to what you're saying but sorry to interrupt just yeah and and and, you know actually you could say sometimes the media is too focused at the top end of the game Mm, at the prem and we should be exploring issues lower down the league Mm. more and using a chance to um hold these people to account as well because if they escape scrutiny, then um, you can potentially get away with a lot. I mean, people fear various parts of football, asset stripping owners. And I mean, at the heart of it, you know, we look at, see, when we talk about transfers, players earning lots of money, and uh, do they get the big move to earn even more? We forget lower down the leagues, you know, in these situations as well, suddenly earnings disappear. And you have your finances committed, however much you're earning in a certain way, you're expecting that income to be coming in. So when you hear players not being able to sort of keep up mortgages and various other payments, um, Mm. that shows the the reality. And then, you know, Bolton having to rely on playing youth players and, um, you know, that affects an impact on their welfare, the burden put on them and the workload. And, uh, yeah, it's all about the, you know, do you want some sort of overarching body, an external body that assesses rigorously every new owner that's coming in? Um, and then perhaps that would prevented over 10 years ago, Saxon Shinawata taking over Manchester City when he was also accused of human rights violations while the Thai Prime Minister by amnesty and various other um, um, in problems over his financing, although ultimately that led to the um, him being urged to sell City, which happened to be to Sheikh Mansour. Um, and that's always the chance, you know, the thing where you know City fans say, "Well, our owners, all they're doing is putting money into the game. They're putting lots of money in. Um, why do you want to stop that investment in the game?" Uh, so that's the other end. But then, yeah, with with Bolton and Berry, when you're seeing clubs fight for their very survival, um, it's very very sad. Mm. I mean, I'm not sure if you've both seen. I saw, you know, on Talksport, I think the Berry owner had an on-air spat with one of the players, and the player was saying that if I lose my job tomorrow, then I lose my house. And the owner showed like such a disregard for his players' welfare, and it just shows that you know these clubs aren't being properly you know looked after, and it's ruining the game because you've got a situation in the league where you've got Bolton maybe minus twelve, Berry minus eleven, or something, and it it kills the league because already you know two of the teams are going to get relegated. So how how is this going to be solved? How is this going to be you know eradicated from the game? I mean, someone says, but you know. Why aren't Premier League clubs helping out lower league teams? Mm-hmm. And you know, perhaps the better thing that's not necessarily allowed is if they could create a fund that is there available to help rescue clubs 
that encounters such difficulties obviously you don't really want them to end up in that situation mm -hmm. to start with mm. but yeah it's um there's a lot of responsibility and pressure now on the football mm. league to firm up their rules regulations and how much they assess incoming owners yeah. and investors over what are their long-term plans is the money there and the fact this Bolton battle is in court still progressing through court you've got one party who's trying to buy the club who's being seems thinks he's being blocked um Lawrence Bassini by the administrators because there's this other consortium that is seen as more um beneficial for the future of the club um what you don't want is a obviously a club to to go under mm. let's, uh... Let, let's let's scroll back to um a story you broke last week um me and Dej were both british and we're also both nigerian um we have a lot of nigerian listeners listening to this podcast and a certain nigerian official has been banned for life for for match fixing i believe just Tell us a bit about what's going on here. Yeah, well, this is um, all relating to a Singaporean match fixer, Wilson Raj uh, Puramal. And mm. many cases over the last decade we've heard about have stemmed from uh, how his tentacles are spread across the game in terms of manipulating referees mm. and players and coaches. And there have been various bans that are put in place. Uh, one referee... Um, was uh, banned for life a couple of years ago wow. um, by FIFA. Mm. And um, what you lack the confidence at the time from FIFA and the Confederation of African Football was what measures they'd put in place to actually learn from it. And that's what, even if we do have cases of match fixing, you want to know publicly, what have they actually done to respond to stop this from happening again? Mm. And probably when you get very brief statements that are quite vague in terms of what the actual um, wrongdoing is, it doesn't perhaps give you that full insight into not only the problem, but also what's been done to, to stop it. Because actually, if you don't know how the match fixer was able to manipulate a manager or a player or a referee, you don't know how to put things in place to actually stop it happening mm. again. And so, um, yeah, so do you feel this is just the start? Do you think there's going to be a lot of other, you know, African nations being caught for 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 potentially match fixing? Yeah, I mean, it's not just African as well. Obviously, you know, mm. parts of Europe as well have, have not have you know, there've been Spanish investigations that are ongoing and mm. um, other parts of Europe. So it just shows. And actually, you know, ahead of the Women's World Cup, it was something FIFA put in place mechanisms to make sure their integrity process was a strength because actually as um, more money goes into the game so there's the ability to um, you know try to corrupt it as well and particularly in a game like the women's football you have vast disparities as well um, as there are so few professional leagues yeah, yeah. and professional players the fact the temptation is there mm -hmm. as well particularly if you're not um, guaranteed large incomes and um, you know it's always guarding against the possibility for um, you know for, for outcomes manipulate because ultimately you have to have confidence in the game let's scroll back um, 2012 I believe if you know what I'm going to start talking about right 2011 if 2011 yeah. I remember there was a certain press conference where 
Sir Alex Ferguson was like, yeah, the man on the laptop. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> who's he? Who's he? Who's he? Who is he? Who is he? I don't want to see him again in a, in a press conference. He should be banned. What happened? So, casting your mind back many years now. <laughs> well, actually, seven, eight years. Um, and Ryan Giggs was in the midst of a, a super injunction case over an alleged affair which is not the normal type of issue we would raise in a football press conference. Mm. And what turned that into a bigger issue was the fact he went to court to get this super injunction. We couldn't name him at the time. Then he was named in Parliament. So um, the week or so before the Champions League final against Barcelona, you had a player from Manchester United, one of the most successful players <laughs> in the game, named in Parliament by an MP um, as being having sought the super injunction to keep details of private life um, out of the media. So whatever you thought about whether it's a legitimate story or not, suddenly and he was being named in Parliament, which made it, well, Ryan Giggs has been um, named in Parliament. So whatever happened, he was going to be a talking point going into the Champions League final that week. Mm-hmm. So come Alex Ferguson's press conference, you think, well, we need Alex Ferguson talking about Ryan Giggs in some way. What is the the least controversial way of introducing the topic just to get him talking about Ryan Giggs as a play give him the opportunity to talk about Giggs as his man you could actually go in far harder as a question um, the fact you know he's created this distraction in the Champions League final week which has led to him being named in Parliament uh, as seeking a super injunction so I actually just said well Ryan Giggs is your most experienced Champions League player this will be his third final just how important is he to the team give him as Fergie, the opportunity to say whatever he wanted to about Giggs however Giggs. much yep. however yep. little yep. Yep. and he just gave some vague all players important and then he was caught muttering under his breath uh, we'll get him we'll ban him um, op- obviously the opportunity was there there were some other journalists trying to get follow-ups mm. in I think Kemi and Zoe from Channel 4 News was there off memory behind me but obviously it was quite hard to get follow-ups in because actually it was a legitimate issue and I introduced it I would say in the lightest possible way mm. um so yeah, that was an interesting one. Uh, what I didn't do at the time was um, many, many requests for interviews on the story. It was headline news. It was back and front page news in some papers as well, um, all across the news bulletins. It didn't need me to feed it. It didn't need me to seem to be milking the story or to turn myself into a a um, talking head and to seem to be like taking a victory lap because I'd been You're one banned. in the limelight, yeah. basically, yeah. Yeah, because there were enough people defending me anyway, and it was self-explanatory. So it didn't really need me to be seen to do that. I mean, that week took a slightly bizarre week because it ended up, ended up in Zurich uh, the morning after the Champions League final I was out because that was a, um, one of the FIFA scandals. It was just right before Sepp Blatter's re-election <laughs> and his opponent had been caught up in a bribery case. And uh, so the next thing was su- Sunday evening, a globally televised press conference oh, the world man. watching. They suddenly hear, oh, He's putting Seth Blatter on the spot. The, the same guy who was involved with Fergie earlier in the week. So that's how the sort of your uh, how journalists can take many different paths. Of, uh... <sighs> wow. So, um, so just just a bit more about that. So, did you ever, you know, rekindle and like, you know, redevelop your relationship with Sir Alex Ferguson, or would you say it was always fractured from then? I suppose I wonder how much you remembered it. I mean, I remember being at his book launch and asking him questions then. It wasn't even... Did he hold know, grudges? the question. I, did he even remember me? I don't know. Um, <laughs> I think I spoke to him around the UEFA <laughs> meeting once and um, probably didn't remember in that mm. sense. You know, maybe I wasn't 
you know, not claiming at the to be some great famous face uh, that he would necessarily uh, know. So, yeah, no obvious signs. And, you know, even afterwards, you don't let it take away from how you view him as a uh, as a managerial great. I mean, I, you know... Can I, I, mm, can I, can I ask you a question? You, you can answer it however you want to answer it. But it seems to me that Ryan Giggs is, you know, reputation after that was never, ever put in doubt or tarnished. And... Stan Collamore, for example, he he doesn't get good press anymore. Why is it that for Ryan Giggs, his reputation has stayed untouched, unscathed, whereas Stan Collamore is now, you know, one of the most hated people in the country? I've never said that with Stan. I mean, I've seen him quite a bit, particularly in the last few weeks. He launched his new uh, podcast. Yeah. I've done a plug arrival, so. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but actually, you know, he's actually put himself front row again at Chelsea yesterday, asking Brendan Rodgers questions. He's okay. out there. He's, he's, he's putting in the hard yards as a jur- journalist, as it were, as he yeah. sees himself as a pundit mm. and, uh, um, you know, rigorously pursuing issues and also asking thorough questions at press conferences. So um, he's not... Um, you know, he's not just trying to find the, an easy path in punditry. He's, mm. he's, I think he's out in Malaysia this coming weekend or Indonesia, I forget. He mentioned to do some punditry. And, you know, he hosted good shows. Mm. Um, you know, I know him well. I would, what's probably not helped him is some of the battles he's picked on Twitter. He's obviously perfectly entitled <laughs> to. Yeah, um, he fights his corner. Some causes <laughs> have um, created issues maybe around the game but everyone has the right to an opinion if I was giving him friendly advice that would uh, be it but you know certainly a very accomplished broadcaster asks a good question as well as having an actual opinion on it and is a good host as well he can sort of he's an all-rounder in that sense as a uh, as a broadcaster yeah so just moving forward I've got a few personal questions from my friends they want to find out my good mate Rowan Lucas he's a big fan of your work he says that yeah the content that you put out is dope dope means you know very great. good <laughs> very <yeah>. good <laughs> one thing I hadn't discussed is some of the you discuss some stories that you sort of like broke or you're interested in actually doping has been one of the okay. issues okay. of it which is uh, okay. probably actually one of the, the one of the areas I tackled ahead. I wasn't segueing into no. doping but one of those ahead of the World Cup which actually you know was probably one of those difficult areas which was gaining um, some information from a Russian doping whistleblower that directly accused the Russian Deputy Prime Minister of um, involvement in football doping cases mm. and named him um, he was in charge of World Cup planning. Mm. A few weeks later, mm. he was taken off that by top of the Russian state. He was no longer had a direct role as um, involved in World Cup planning. I'd already been on to him as an issue, and a few weeks earlier, I was actually at the Kremlin where I got a tap on the shoulder, and it was uh, Vitaly Mutka, the Deputy Prime Minister of Russia, trying to wow. challenge me on some reporting. <laughs> so that's uh, you know the, the other side away from encountering managers as, as a segue unintended from the positive <laughs> like, reference there. Yeah, yeah, your content is dope. Um, But yeah, so the question is, does... So the question is from Rowan Lucas. He says, does third-party ownership help talent get a chance? As in, should um, third-party investment funds have a chance... So this is the uh, the practice outlawed, which is basically, can you sell your rights as a player to third-party, to to a third-party? I um, asked him a bit more to explain the question a bit, you know, more 
so you can get a better gauge of it. And he's saying, so for example, would certain players still get the same opportunity if they didn't have financial backers? And that's the thing. Well, if you were owned by like a a certain group of people, would they have your best interests at heart or would they be wanting to maximise the mm. profit from you? And would you be carrying out football moves for the best and football f- footballing reasons? And you don't want to be controlled by a fund mm. um, or whatever. And it's a difficult one, particularly so many players, particularly you've seen from South America who've been involved in these third-party funds, you know, want the opportunity to, um, the chance to play for the biggest teams, the wealthiest teams, and um, earn what they see is available in so, the game. So, mm. And it's a question of can you find a middle ground? Can you almost create like investment funds that are not directly linked to the player? So they're sort of dissociated and they can choose almost like um, to invest in it without knowing or having any say at all. Um, so, like, in terms of, are there some talents that are amazing talents, but they may not get an opportunity because they don't have that financial backing behind them? Yeah, and you think, um, you know, how much of a career can be built on being spotted, being in the right place to be mm. spotted, getting the opportunity mm. to have the... Um, to, to develop the talent, the right levels of coaching as well. You know, just the fact of the Women's World Cup, we talk about things like goalkeeping standards. Have they improved? Because actually now there's more money in the game. So you specialise goalkeeping coach and things like that. And how much is are you relying on actually getting that um, um, those opportunities? Um, okay. Thanks for that, Rob. Um, Dej, is there anything you personally want to ask Rob? Um, yeah, financial doping we were talking about earlier. So what makes you have such a keen interest in this part of the sport? Because most journalists just want to talk about the glossy side of the game, the on-the-pitch stuff. What sparked like a real interest in like the off-the-field battles? I suppose actually um, some of it was the access. So one of my early stories was like around in terms of the uh, most interesting around the ownership, I feel enough time has passed to talk about it some of it was on the record anyway so you can see it but the Liverpool ownership battle between uh, Tom Hicks and George Gillette what actually happened yeah and quite frankly you could I would talk to both sides okay and um, you know reached the point where I was outside the lawyer's office when the takeover (laughs) to uh, John Henry and his uh, team was being Mm. completed and I had uh, Tom Hicks on the Blackberry messaging me this conspiracy (laughs) of the British establishment and I'd be getting these all these lines out from him and you know you have direct communication with both sides so you actually have a good sense of where the the battle is and the, the enmity between Tom Hicks and George Gillette uh, and at times when they weren't talking, I'd be talking to both of them uh, between them. So you actually have a good sense um, and able to put their words into print as well and to so really get to the heart as, of the issue. How were they as owners? Were they? Do you think they had the, you know, the the thoughts of the club with them, or do you think they were just running the club into yeah. the ground? Basically. I mean, one problem was it was a fifty-fifty split. So if one person had one opinion and the other had another, then you're at deadlock. Yeah, and it's not the way to run any business. You realise, and also then their kids, their sons also then were part of this like battle between them, okay. and th- there would be issues. It become really fractious at the same time as the global financial crisis meant their ambitions for investment in the club and building new stadium were curbed by their ability to refinance debts of the club as well. So mm. it was like coming together of like two um, strong individuals who then disagreed, their families disagreed and the inability to find financing. Um, I mean, it's interesting the fact American ownership, they 
can tend to engage more time. Obviously, the Glazers don't, but you know, I've had dealings with um, John Henry and the Coutinho uh, loan to Bayern Munich reminds me of a uh, um, a rare interview I did with John Henry. I was able to do him before the 2018 Champions League final. Okay, yeah. Where okay. um, it's one of those rare examples where you get stronger quotes than you can ever imagine uh, when you're not even trying to in mm. any way mm. catch them out. And he was saying, I don't know why any player would want to leave Liverpool to go to a league like Spain where you basically only got a few matches a year wow. that matter. Mm. And um, Oh, was, well, it you? was it you that broke that one? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> I, re- I, re- I remember. I remember when that came out. Don't you remember that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I remember it mm. still. You forget. <laughs> this is what I'm saying. I, f- I forget from your early question the various stories that, that you know that we do. We're not. We know you, you sort of very quickly move mm, on from the story, and you only remember mm. them when something. Oh well, there was that interview that you did with mm. um, with them, and it's hopefully building up that um, you know relations to get those sorts of interviews and to then portray them fairly as well. I remember you know a couple of years ago when I because he was out of the country, I was able to interview Mark Clattenburg because they like, weren't allowed to give interviews yeah. here. Yeah, 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 yeah. And we were actually both at a conference um, abroad and I was able to do basically his first interview and suddenly like, he was able to answer, well, it was, it was actually a couple of months before he left the country, before mm. he quit the Premier League. And um, he was talking then about potentially wanting to like get out and mm. but talk about some of the emotions of life as a referee and mm. even the tattoos and everything mm. um which is fascinating when you've got someone like that who people never hear from mm. and you're able to give them a voice and give humanize the life of a referee mm. um so it's a completely different level of football ownership but just other interviews spring to mind so just to finally round up um we saw a video on your twitter this is we're gonna go away from football now. I know this is a football podcast, but we feel that we need to talk about this on this um on this podcast. I think Dej wants to quickly ask you something before we move on to yeah. the other side of it, but go on, Dej. <laughs> yeah, um when we met up with you, we spoke about the fact you even brought it to our attention that out of the I think ninety two English clubs, there's not one I, press... I don't know across the ninety two, but I mean certain yeah. yeah. Yeah, there's not any, you know, press officers of BAME ethnicity what do you think the gay c- game can do to implement change and you know solve this issue because let's be honest it is an issue yeah I, mean, I think we'll talk more broadly about the lack of diversity across football yeah uh, in general I mean uh, you know I go to a lot of events that are hopefully trying to increase diversity uh, in the game whether it's um, the Rager game from kick it out that they do every year the mentoring scheme um, Leon Mann does a lot of great work in terms of trying to um you know make the media more diverse and so often we're looking at various issues like management which i think we're um, since sol campbell left macclesfield i think we're at five out of 92 is it four or five um bme managers then there is a lot of attention on the media we're not diverse enough hopefully um that is should be changing with appointments that's all about access to the industry also about making sure jobs are advertised as well so it's not just sort of who you know that leads to a job that's all like that and then all all other aspects and then one aspect that hit me hit me is actually press officers who often very much often the conduit between the players and the media and that's not a very diverse area at all you know you know certainly across some of the governing bodies there is a lack of um bme people in those positions 
and that's something that I think needs to change over time because also it means then as players if you have issues often that come up you might feel more confident in discussing them mm-hmm. with uh, a BME press officer I mean it's not for me to tell a player you know what what they should do but but you know there's also been a lack of awareness over how um cases are tackled as well um if you don't necessarily have a a personal experience or personal connection to it. I mean, you've seen it at FIFA in particular, their, their mishandling of um, racism incidents yeah, yeah. and the response and the tone of the response and, and you're not just box ticking in terms of just cursory statements, but actually showing you're actually involved. Mm. It does extend to, in many places, so boardrooms downwards in, in um, organisations. Obviously, you know, I'm a white man. I'm, uh, you know, I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not, adding to the, you know, the diversity of the game, and I recognise that, but hopefully we need to do more to in, increase diversity across all aspects of football and particularly the media industry. Yeah. Well, well said, Rob, well said. Um, yeah, so tell us about your, your interview with Eddie Hearn. It seemed a bit prickly to me. Yeah, I'm a big boxing <laughs> fan so, as well. Yeah, so, so maybe we should turn this into the, to the boxing podcast, <laughs> but... Take it away, Rob. Yeah, I mean, it's a chance to um, delve beyond football. I've covered the last uh, few Olympic Games in, you know, so, you know, you're often addressing issues that are not totally football. It gives you a broader mindset as well and approach. And uh, yeah, so last week, uh, Anthony Joshua's next fight announced to be in Saudi Arabia. Uh, Normally, when we have these big press conferences announcing the fight, um, we'd expect Joshua and Andrew Weiss to be there alongside the promoters to announce it all. But it was only um, in London, uh, Eddie Hearn and an official from Saudi Arabia um, at the Savoy Hotel. There was the Saudi flag above. It's clearly the topic was Saudi Arabia. The video was Saudi Arabia. So the only issue to talk about was Saudi Arabia. Um, after some time, I was able to do an interview with him. I was able to then press him on the criticism of going to Saudi Arabia. Um, and just explore his backing of it, which meant into <laughs> various areas um, over the freedoms and the human rights of um, Saudi Arabia. And as Amnesty say, is it sports washing? Are you helping to give a, some help to cleanse the image of a country that's you know been heavily criticised in recent years? Um, obviously, the British government has not cut relations. They still do sell arms. Um, the question is, do you, you can still adopt your own moral code yep, yep. as well. You can take your own position. Um, obviously, you're not doing anything illegal by engaging in business with them. Um, and, yeah, it was a chance to, um, you know, particularly ask, are there any countries effectively you wouldn't go to, which I did in the context of, you know, would you go to North Korea? Um, he... Um, he was quite surprised by that. <laughs> he did an interview <laughs> afterwards where he was sort of dissecting the interview. And, um, yeah, I suppose he's not maybe always used to that at a boxing yeah, press conference. But um, as long as you're asking the questions politely and uh, based on facts as well, um, the important question we should ask, particularly if, as you've done, you've made your whole press conference about going to Saudi Arabia. Um, and, uh, yeah, it's amazing actually how much in recent years the human rights field has taken over parts of our sports sport in terms of how much focus with Qatar and the World Cup. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was probably the big event that started shifting our mindset onto addressing human rights in countries and how they link to sports. So by the time we reached the 2026 World Cup bidding a year and a half ago, um, 
our minds were adjusted to be far more focused on scrutinizing the human rights of the bids. So the North American bid, there was attention on violence towards um, women in Mexico, uh, which was highlighted by a FIFA report about um, discrimination in the US as well. Um, the Americans released their report into that they submitted to FIFA. It was the fact that Moroccans wouldn't release it that went down badly with Morocco and I basically pressurized FIFA into releasing their human rights the human rights report submitted by Morocco themselves where they had to own up to their um issues um so yeah it meant a lot of sports reporting at times particularly when it's about where do you take your events has become centered around worker rights human rights and the morals and uh, probably just shows actually how hopefully more you know the rigorous sports sporting is i'm certainly not the only one who covers that area yeah and a lot of human rights groups as well have realized to actually uh, point out issues around sports venues as well now oh, rob yeah. it's been a, it's been amazing we could go yeah, on, and, go on, on and, and on and on and on, and on. it's been yeah. so insightful i mean the the deep dive you've given us i'm sure our listeners are going to love it it's been a pleasure to to have you here today we appreciate your work we're big supporters of your work I appreciate that as well. I mean, it's, it's not always I'm talking about my, myself, but hopefully yeah. it is found interesting. Yeah, it's good, <laughs> yeah. to, it's yeah. good to hear you yeah. guys' story. I know a lot of people just want to hear the breaking transfer news or the breaking story in football, but sometimes we want to know a bit more about you, just what got you into journalism. Why do you do it? But I'd hope people understand some of the processes behind how yeah. the controversial question might yeah, be asked. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah. But yeah, big, big thank you. That's another episode of the Beautiful Game podcast. The p- Twitter is at podcast underscore TBG. Use the hashtag TBG pod um, to join in the discussion. Follow us on Twitter. Follow us on Instagram. Follow us on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Spotify and follow us on SoundCloud. It's been brilliant and we will see you soon. Goodbye. Mobile phone companies say they offer home internet. But if their internet comes from a cell phone network, you should know. It's just phone internet, not home internet. Keep your home up to speed with Cox. Cox internet is faster and has more reliable download speeds than 5G home internet. Cox is the real home internet you're looking for. Based on Cox analysis of UCLA speed test intelligence data, Q3 2022 and Cox serviceable areas, visit cox.com internet for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. 
Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.